This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Hello and welcome to a very unique episode of Gospel Bound. My name is Jim Davis, pastor of Orlando Grace Church and host of the As in Heaven podcast here at TGC. And I am joined by a first-time guest here on Gospel Bound, Colin Hansen, who is the vice president of content and chief editor of the Gospel Coalition. Thank you, Colin, for joining me today. (laughs) This is a little weird, Jim, (laughs) but I'm glad to be here. (laughs) And I will say that this is... We're in full emergency mode in Orlando, Florida. We're under tornado warnings and watches and thundering. And so Mm. if you hear some of that in the background, that's what that is. As many of you know, this is Colin's podcast where he is normally the host. But today we are trading seats and I get to interview him about his forthcoming book titled Tim Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation, published by Zondervan. Now, I've said this often that 500 years from now, Uh, I think maybe two pastors or theologians will be remembered, and I I believe that Tim Keller will be one of them. The influence that he has had in the 21st century is just hard to overstate from his sermons, his books, his speaking, his influence in founding TGC, Redeemer City to City, Redeemer Church, just, just to mention a few. And it's fascinating to me to travel overseas, not only to see that he is actually known there, but to see how widely read he is and widely read in so many different theological streams. So it's easy to see that Tim has influenced many, but in Colin's new book, we get to see who influenced Tim to make him who he is. So Colin, I I know that Tim has had a big influence on you. Can you tell us exactly how he's had an influence on you and how you decided to write this book? So I got to know Tim in 2007. I was working on my first book, Young Restless Reformed, and I ran up to him at a Gospel Coalition conference. In fact, it was the first Gospel Coalition conference. It was held at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and I was just about to start there as a student. And, uh, and I said, hey, I'm working on this book. I'd like to be interviewed, or I'd like, I'd like to interview you. And keep in mind, Tim was not a really well-known figure at the time. Um, I'd heard reference to him. Christianity Today had covered him. I think Andy Crouch had written about him. And uh, we knew a lot about him just because of 9-11 and, and things like that. And maybe I'd heard about a book that was coming out next year. Um, that was The Reason for God. In 2008, he published both The Prodigal God and The Reason for God. And so I, yeah, a big year, yeah, no doubt about it. So so I asked him about this, and and he said, yeah, I mean, I'm not really interested in, in doing that interview, but you can send me some questions. So I sent him some questions, and he responded 
with one-word answers. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. So I pretty much went ahead with that book without um, you know, without a lot of uh, you know mention of Tim. And uh, but from there, we actually began to work on a series of books together, and it was a series of books based on uh, different aspects of cultural engagement. We we edited a book together uh, by Michael Gerson and, and Pete Weiner called City of Man about politics. Um, did a couple more of those as well. Culminated in my book Blind Spots in 2015, which is just kind of rip, um, ripping off um, some aspects of what Tim has talked about in, in places like Center Church. And so then also through the Gospel Coalition, we we had been working together um, for a long period of time. But I would say that the number one area that has struck me about Tim from the beginning was the the way he articulates the concept of theological vision, and especially the way he lays that out in the Gospel Coalition's foundation documents. I had just never seen anything like that before, Jim. Uh, the way that um, the way that you could you could have a a positive but also critical approach to culture from a theological foundation that would shape your life and your ministry. Um, I just had never seen something like that before. And that was the number one area. And then I think, Jim, I was just the right age because mentioned right there in the seminary, uh, you've got his first two books come out and then it has just been a parade of hits since then. Center Church comes out when I'm early at um, at TGC and early in ministry and, and everything else, Meaning of Marriage in 2012. And I remember that was when I was living out in New York, New York City area. And then we brought, um, we, we used some of Kathy Keller's advice for a friend of ours who was living with a man that she was engaged to, but he was not a Christian. Um, she broke up with him on Kathy's advice. I mean, there were just all kinds of things. And, um, and so, so much of my ministry uh, since my mid-20s has been against the backdrop of Tim's publishing um, and just the rise of the Gospel Coalition, and so um, it's uh, it it's been it's been a major influence. I think um, you know certainly the biggest biggest influence on on my life. Well, you know, with your proximity to Keller over the years, being a formative figure in your life, uh, the things you talked about, founding the organization that you've given so much of your life to. How did you prevent this book from being a hagiography that is an overly idealized perspective of Tim? A lot of ways that'll be in the judge of the readers um, to figure out if I was able to avoid that. But I had a lot of good help from from Tim himself, but then also especially from his friends and his his colleagues. And I remember one colleague in particular, she was um, uh, an important member early on at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And she would alternate between um, crying with thankfulness for Tim's ministry and everything that he had taught and shown her about the Lord. And then as soon as she could see me feverishly taking notes about what she was saying, she would turn right around and say, but don't you dare make him out to be a saint. Don't you (laughs) dare do that. He made a lot of mistakes. We were really angry at him. And that was because she had been on staff at the church as well. And so I would say one of the more um, kind of pointed aspects of the book relates to some of Tim's struggles as a manager. And so the reason I say that I had Tim, Tim's help, is because 
Tim just doesn't cast himself as somebody who's above the grace that he proclaims. He he um he talks about his he, he doesn't he doesn't like conflict. Um, he tends toward people pleasing. Um, and th- I mean, I think a lot of us can relate with that. But um, and and he's very clear. I mean, he told me in the book that he's not a very good leader. I I say in the book that that's not correct. He is a good leader, he just isn't a good manager. Um, and um, but I, I've spent Jim most of my career around pretty successful pastors, and not many of them are good managers. Um, beyond that, beyond that, just nobody's good at everything, and so. I just always had that perspective, and and I also got some help from another one of Tim's colleagues who said to me that um, the people who are closest to Tim don't idolize him. You know, the people who are most prone to do that are the ones who are kind of listening to him or reading him at a distance. That didn't mean that the people close to him have a negative view. They just see him as a human being. Um, and one that they deeply admire, but as a as a human being, I think it also helps a lot to know Tim and Kathy together, um, because that's when you when you truly understand both of them is when they're together, and um, and you just you, it, it's just very human. Um, they're just they're just a, a couple, and they they work through things and. And you'll have some interesting conversations with both <laughs> of them when you're talking. So um, it's a uh, yeah, so I mean, I hope I hope the book is written from that people can sense my appreciation and in many ways my debt to Tim. But my job as the writer was to present his story on on his terms, especially through the perspective of those people who influenced him. So in many ways, the book is not always me assessing Tim. It's just talking with Tim about, say, his mentor, Ed Clowney, or about Barbara Boyd, who taught him to read the Bible. So that's another reason the book, I hope, avoids that hagiography, because it's not necessarily just a book about Tim. Well, I appreciate, I will say, I think you accomplished what you set out to do, in, well, in both regards, but the first one, in, in not over-idealizing him, because it was really, and I did love the book, so I enjoyed that's, I'm not paid to say that. I really did enjoy that. And uh, in the early years in Redeemer, as they grew, you write about the frustrations the staff had and what um, we talked about it in one of our staff meetings. Just what got them through that, though, was Tim's character. As frustrated as people were, you, you know, his, his character um, caused them to stay by him. And you explain how, how that worked itself out in the book. All right, so most listeners, they're aware of Tim's current health issues, I would assume. Uh, would you be able to give us a, a recent update on how he's doing health-wise? Yeah, sure. So there was a sense of urgency that came with this project back in 2020 because that was the year Tim turned 70, but it was also the year that, and when the world shut down, and also when he got his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. Now, from the beginning, we knew that this was a fairly early detection, but pancreatic cancer is still pancreatic cancer. There is a 100% death rate from it. Um, um, and what we, and I would say the, the amazing thing is while Tim has been unavailable at different times and has had one massive health scare in the middle of that, um, otherwise the treatments have been, um, I mean, they've been, they've been very effective. Um, I, I, I mean, where he is right now is just, I don't know how you could be more 
positive about somebody with uh, with pancreatic mm-hmm. cancer and and he's going through some experimental treatments and um, and and hopefully those will work and hopefully they'll be the kind of treatments that the rest of us get someday when we're when we're faced with a similar situation so he's blessed by many people praying for him uh, the Lord has been kind in that regard he's been blessed with uh, really good medical medical care even through the pandemic which of course complicates everything when you imagine um, being afflicted with something as serious as pancreatic cancer, but as the world is trying to deal with this amazing, um, you know, pandemic, so um, devastating pandemic. So, so I would just say that our our hope is that the Lord will continue to provide many years um, with Tim, and um, and thankfully that that seems more plausible now than it did when we first just heard those um, those dreaded words of pancreatic cancer. Well, praise God for that. Colin, I know you've done a lot of research on this book. People may just assume you you gleaned it as you went, but I've texted with you late at night. You're <laughs> listening to clowny lectures. I mean, you've done a ton of research. What In all that research, what su- surprised you the most about Tim Keller and his influences? Well, I've got I've to give a, a shout out here. There's no way you can succeed in these... Um, succeed in these endeavors without the help of some, uh, well, some some providential helps. And I'll cite two people in particular for that and and hopefully tease enough of the book so that people want to go uh, check it out for themselves. I got to thank Louise Midwood. Um, Louise was one of the classmates of both Tim and Kathy at Gordon-Conwell. She sent me a packet of uh, documents from that early period. And I'll just say that um, we're going to learn some interesting new things about the origins of Table Talk magazine. <laughs> I did. <laughs> From that section. So <laughs> that was, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, Jim, hardly anybody knew uh, what I had uh, uncovered there. And, and it only pieced together because I had just read the newly published biography of R.C. Sproul. Um, and, uh, and I'm, and then I got this packet from Louise Midwood, and I'm looking here, and I can't believe my eyes, and I chase down the story, and I'll just kind of leave it there for readers to to pick up themselves. But well, let, let me even say, I live I live in Orlando, Florida. You know, RC was here, Ligonier's here, and I had never heard what you learned in that book. <laughs> I'm not I'm not sure they had, Jim. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna find that out. I I'm not sure they had known <laughs> this part of the story. Um, so for me, um, as a you know, as 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 writing a lot of history, that's one of those moments that you look back on and say, "Huh, wow, <laughs> that might be a genuinely new contribution to our understanding." Um, people, a lot of people just don't know the the connections between the Kellers and the Sproles. Yeah, um, that RC had actually officiated their wedding. Um, so, and that they had participated at Ligonier Valley Studies Center, which is near Pittsburgh, which is where Tim's family had moved from Allentown and where Kathy grew up. And so there were a lot of those connections in there. That was back in the kind of the counterculture days um, of Ligonier Valley Studies Center. So, uh, but then connected to that, I think the other person that I, I owe so much to is is Craig Ellis, mm-hmm. Tim's assistant. And um, I would say, Jim, that the emotional climax of the book at least for me is the is the death of Tim's only brother Billy in 1998 and naturally I wanted to know if Tim had 
preached his brother's funeral, he had, and I wanted to know what he had to say. And Tim could not recall at least what what he'd had. I mean, there was, he said, I, I think there is a recording of it, but I don't know where it is. But thankfully, I got the manuscript notes from Craig. And yeah, I'll leave that to people to see. But the question I love to ask, Jim, is what message do you think Tim Keller preached at his younger brother's funeral? And just kind of let that sit with people. And so I'll leave it with the listeners there to, to mull that over and to check it out in the book and see what he preached. Well, I won't spoil the answer to that, but it was an emotional section and, and lots about Tim's family that, that I, I had never, never known. And it was neat to see God work in the midst of it. As I said, I read the book. One thing that uh, that moved me, and maybe maybe convicted me is a better way to say it, is Tim's heart for and his dependence on prayer. And you especially see this in the early years of Redeemer. What 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 things moved you or convicted you as you worked on this project? Well, let's just stick on that theme. Um, you see it as a consistent theme throughout Tim's life, and you could add that later on with Tim's um, earlier bout with uh, prostate cancer as well as Kathy's struggles with Crohn's disease. And you see that around that September 11th period, they were both in, in, in bad health. Uh, they were burned out because of the trauma and all the aftermath of 9-11. The church was in rough shape. Now they'd lost a lot of money as a result of the kind of the, the recession in, in New York after the attacks. And and you've seen this, this has come up in their writings, but they talk about how prayer is like taking a pill that keeps you alive. If you knew that you had to do this to survive, you wouldn't miss it. And so that became the anchor of their own prayer life together. Uh, seeking the Lord together every single night, no exception. Even if they weren't together, um, that was even if they weren't together. So that was a that was a significant part as well. But I loved what Kathy. Um, I know Jim, this was part of the book that stood out to you as well. But there's a lot about Kathy in here. People are gonna. I mean, she is the most significant influence on his life, and um, people are gonna learn a lot in there. And I just loved what Kathy said about her early um, prayer letters. Uh, for Redeemer Presbyterian Church, and she describes them as the whiniest, most pathetic prayer letters ever written in the history of missionaries <laughs> about about being a mom to three boys in New York. And she said all these Presbyterian women felt so bad for her and were so glad they weren't in her situation. They'd send her five bucks to take the boys to McDonald's. But I love how Kathy comes back and says, there has been no church plant in the history of the church that has been prayed over more and especially by women, than Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And she says, if you really want to know how to start a successful megachurch, find out where God is already working a revival and then move there you know, a month later, or a month before, I think, is what she said. And um, that just speaks to their sense that for all the hard work and all the vision and all the planning, in the end, only God could give that growth, and God gave that growth through the means of of corporate prayer. And so, I think that's a good theme, Jim. I mean, I, that's a that's a convicting one for me as well as somebody who doesn't describe myself as a real natural when it comes to prayer. Well, let's stick with Kathy for a little bit because I I finished reading your book, and I found myself hoping your next project would be a biography of her because <laughs> I really I <laughs> did not kn- I didn't know much <laughs> about Kathy to begin with. 
Um, but I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm not going to spoil too much, but I can't. I, it, she had a correspondence, a written correspondence with C.S. Lewis as a 12-year-old because she just wanted to encourage what she thought was an old, washed-up author. She had no idea how big yeah. he was. And so as a 12-year-old, she was consuming C.S. Lewis, writing C.S. Lewis. You talk about a lot of other things about her and and because she was, is the greatest influence in her husband's life. Um, no. So... Did you know much of her story before starting this project? And if not, what did you learn along the way? I did. Um, so Kathy and I have, have worked together for almost as long as, as Tim and I have. She's spoken at a number of Gospel Coalition events, especially our women's conferences. Um, she's written book reviews for us. She's written essays for us on raising children in the city. She's written um, uh, one of the most important articles in TGC's history about why you should not marry an unbeliever. Mm. Um, so, and, um, and Kathy is one of the most capable writers. I mean, she's a, she's a professional editor, not only on Tim's works and a co-author with some, with, with him on some of his, some of his books, but then also previously worked as a book editor in Philadelphia. So that's a lot of Kathy's background. Um, she was a student, got an MA while Tim got an MDiv at Gordon Conwell. And, um, yeah, she is, I, I think the, the best perspective I got from her about her was from Liz Kaufman. Uh, Dick Kaufman was the executive pastor at Redeemer in the 1990s and was really the person that was supposed to, like Dick and Liz were supposed to plant that church in New York City and were providentially hindered uh, from doing so. Didn't feel a release to be able to do it. It was a, it was a surprise uh, situation there. But um, and Dick unfortunately now has dementia, so I couldn't talk with him. But I was able to talk with with Liz, and Liz said that people don't understand that Tim has had an editor inside his head this entire time, and that's Kathy. And that's not just his books, of course. That's also his sermons. Um, and Kathy has never been shy to point out when she thinks that Tim has fallen <laughs> short on uh, on something or missed something. And then we talk about the old. Um, one of uh, R.C. Sproul's favorite things to do at Ligonier Valley Study Center were the Gab Fests, yeah. all hours of night talks. And Tim and Kathy would do that as well, especially when they moved to Hopewell, Virginia. And uh, and Kathy would participate in those, answering questions. And one of the parts that stood out to me, Jim, was the, the, the comment from John Guest, um, who amazingly is still with us <laughs> as a as a longtime Episcopal priest and and a revivalist and evangelist and and uh, John Guest says that Kathy Christie um, uh, now Keller is one is the greatest youth organizer in Western Pennsylvania and uh, but I think when you when you put it all together and say what what kind of woman is corresponding one of the last people one of the last people to correspond with C.S. Lewis who travels to the kilns the year after he dies at, as a teenager, as a young teenager, and then goes on to be this force of nature as a youth organizer uh, for, for churches, for ministries there, and then goes on to Gordon Conwell. Um, yeah, I think if – I wouldn't be surprised, Jim, if the primary takeaway of the book about Tim Keller is for people to really see – and understand the the unique influence of Kathy. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about I, I, yeah, 
she was really the one, if I remember correctly, when they were deciding whether to plant Redeemer in New York, she was the one that said, well, we need to do it. And she had, a, I can't remember exactly how she said it. Well, it was, it was one of the, it was one of my favorite parts of the book and something, there are many things I just didn't know. I mean, you asked Jim earlier about, but just how I've known Tim. I mean, I've worked closely with them for a long time and there were most of the things I think in this book I didn't know before I started working on it. And so, you know, Kathy, the main reason Tim had said at least publicly that he wasn't interested in the church is that he was worried about Kathy and the boys. And she just didn't want to leave. She just didn't want to she just didn't want to be in New York and, and have to raise those boys. Her thought was, what am I supposed to do? Tell him to go play in the street? Yeah. Like I don't have any options here. And um and Tim comes back at one point and he says, Well, I think Kathy we just can't go and and I think it's because um you know I just I, I just I can't do that to you and classic Kathy uh, <laughs> classic Kathy gets mad at him and incur- and and demands that he step up as the leader <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> so it was like I'm gonna deal she's like don't you make the decision and I will deal with the Lord. Mm. You make the decision. You're the husband. You're the leader. You make the decision. I'll deal with the Lord. And she did at Jack Miller's church in um, in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. Um, and she was and she was released and she was prepared to go. But uh, it's one of definitely one of my favorite parts of the book. That's just a good example of their yeah. dynamic. That that Kathy is uh, that 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 Tim is very concerned for her, trying to take care of her. That she pushes back and says. You know, be a man, take the lead, make the decision. I'll take it up with the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned Hopewell. Um, th- this is not a part of Tim's story that I was very familiar with. You think of Tim Keller, New York City, reaching cities. But I think he spent, I think it was nine years in rural Hopewell, uh, Virginia, mm. right? Is it Hopewell, mm. Virginia? 80, uh, 75 to 84, okay. that's right. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's south of, I mean, it's semi-rural. It's south of uh, Petersburg, okay. uh, or Richmond, I should say, kind of that Richmond-Petersburg area. But yeah, so semi-rural, an, an, an industry town, put it that way, an old DuPont, DuPont industry town. So his formations are, are I mean, you have on one, ext- you know, you have the academ- academia, but then you also have this church where he's preaching yeah, three sermons a week, and he's doing all the visitations on the on the edge of burnout, and and that part of your the story that you told and the ways that it formed him, I, I think, is really relatable to a lot of pastors around the country. So it was just interesting to see the oh, wide man. variety of fifteen fifteen hundred sermons wow. preached there, fifteen hundred sermons that he preached in those nine years. And um, I'll just give you one anecdote from that. Um, was talking with Bruce Henderson, who was the best man at their wedding, uh, Tim's best friend in college. And I was I was asking him <laughs> about the move to Hopewell from Gordon Conwell, and because uh, you know obviously they're very young, and and um, you're you're moving into a church on a three month appointment in a congregation that has only two college graduates who are both elementary school teachers and where most of the members did not complete their education beyond the sixth grade. Okay. That's the context back there in the 19, 1970s, uh, 75. And I asked Bruce about that and he said, yeah, Tim called me and, and was asking me some questions and obviously didn't get paid very much. <laughs> and, um, and, and Bruce says, yeah, they, they probably they wouldn't have made, um, you know, it wouldn't have made a strong impression. And I'm just thinking, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure the church, um, you know, they, they must have been desperate, I think is what he said. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, Tim and Kathy were actually studying to be postal workers, at, or you know, training to be postal yeah. workers because they couldn't get hired in a church. Keep in mind, they had become Presbyterian. They are wanting to do the PCA. They were complementarians, male leadership, and they were in New England. Yeah. And the PCA was brand new five years earlier. So there weren't options for them. They didn't have any connections in the South. Uh, so they just didn't know that they had any options there. And um, and Bruce says, yeah, they must have been desperate. And I said, yeah, of course Tim and Kathy were desperate. He said, no, I mean the church must have been desperate. <laughs> 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 he says, I don't think Tim would have made a strong impression on them. <laughs> and that's one of the things that we – that we, I mean, Tim has grown a lot over time. And and uh, I think Tim and Kathy both were not exactly the, the most social um, – kind of social elite – out there, but that part of ministry was was a way that they definitely grew. They grew together. They grew individually, and grew um, to be prepared for the ministry that they would they would go on to do together. Well, that's another area I feel like you give us a real picture of Tim the Kellers. I, I think in one place you refer to him at, I guess it was at Gordon Conwell as a little more of a wallflower, um, a little less yeah. likely to mm-hmm. walk into a room and take it over. Um, and so we have that Tim Keller, we have the, the Hopewell Tim Keller, the New York City Tim Keller, the Gospel Coalition Tim Keller, um, all the same Tim Keller in very different settings. You know, you look at all that Tim has, all the ways the Lord has used Tim would be the best way to say it. What do you think Tim's lasting legacy a hundred years from now will be? It's a great question, Jim. So I think you could go two directions on that. Most of the time when when the Lord continues to perpetuate the legacy of one of his servants, it seems to be through their writing. Um, now, we're in a whole new ball game with the Internet, so who knows with, with sermons that you can watch and listen to so easily. But usually it's, it's through the writings. The books endure. And, I, I mean, these are, these are books that manage to be both timely but also with timeless truth. There's a... There's a real, real um, triperspectival dynamic to Tim's writing. The, the situational for that cultural moment, the normative of its of its biblical and theological treatments, as well as the um, um, the existential, which is really the, the ability he has to to preach to the heart. There's a lot of counseling influence. David Paulus and CCEF on um, on Tim as well. So I think I think for those reasons, the books, though they are written for a moment. At the same time, really have a um, a long lasting effect, and and they continue to sell well, um, even now in in some cases like with the reason for God about fourteen years after publication. But I would say there there is another dynamic here, and and this will be harder to know how it plays out. But I mentioned in there that someday when the New York Times does an obituary of Tim, the lead is going to be about his work of engaging evangelicals in global cities. There's just no doubt in my mind that that is the singular yeah. difference that he's made, which is most evident in Manhattan. Uh, when he starts Redeemer Presbyterian Church, I was able to identify, I think, four other evangelical congregations in that city that in the 19th century had been the Protestant and evangelical capital of the United States. Still activity in the boroughs, of course, but I'm talking there about Manhattan, and um, at least four that people knew about and talked about. Um, so 
just to see that transformation in New York City, but then through city to city, um, and then through his books, you mentioned there the translations um, that have been just um, voluminous in so many different languages. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the, th- I think that's the legacy ultimately. Now, maybe there could be reversals on that, but but if you're visiting a global city and find a church that is both familiar but also contextual, then you probably, as you're thanking God, thank him for, for Tim Keller. It's, I'm not saying that he's the only person who was involved in that. The whole point of the book is talking and honoring people like Terry Geiger yeah. and his help um, in founding City to City and and talking about Harvey Kahn and that vision of urban yeah. theology. Um, but Tim has definitely been the catalyst used by God for that, and um, I think that's most likely to be the long-term legacy. Well, I, I mean, I think you're right, and you would know better than most. One of the things that stuck out to me by the end, it was just really neat to see Redeemer and uh, TGC come about and and how all the influences played out. And and Tim, in his humility, would say, oh, well, I mean, that's not new, that's so-and-so, and I got that from so-and-so, and I got that from so-and-so, and you do a good job mm-hmm. of showing, well, yeah, but when you brought the best of all these people together, it became something <laughs> new. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that, that I think is the ultimate takeaway, Jim, of the book is that many of us have been a little bit uh, distracted from Tim's influence because he is so quick to credit people. And I go back, Jim, to a lovely scene, and this is, once again, thanks to Louise Midwood. And she described how at Gordon-Conwell they'd take classes together, and the students would all sit in the lectures, and then they would go back together to Tim's dorm room on campus, and he would redo the lecture. Yeah in a way that was somehow faithful to the professor's intent, but somehow with a twist that made it even more insightful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I remember that. And I just found that to be the ultimate paradigm for Tim is, no, it's not original. If it were original, it wouldn't be orthodox, but it's original in a way that you hadn't really thought about before. It's original and fresh. And that freshness is a wave of the spirit, encouraging you, challenging you, convicting you, and um, and that's I think hopefully something, Jim, that you and I and and other uh, other ministers can um, can emulate. Well, well said. Thank you for your work on this project. It, everybody can pre-order now. It comes out in February. Am I correct? That's right, February. Get 7th. a copy of it. Yes. Give it as a gift to somebody. February seventh, <laughs> Colin. You know what we do here All at the right. end. There it is. This is time for your final three. <laughs> I didn't feel like it would sound right if I called them my final three. Thank you. Colin, how do you find calm in the storm? Oh, man, this is, so, is going to be so shocking to listeners of this podcast um, by reading. Um, yeah. Reading not only because novels will transport me to different worlds, um, immersive worlds, um, I just got done reading. Oh, this feels shameful. I shouldn't be admitting this. I just got mm-hmm. done reading The Return of the King for the first time. I felt okay. like I kind of had to polish these off before publishing the book on Tim, <laughs> given his indebtedness <laughs> to Tolkien. Um, but uh, just the that's where I find that calm is those immersive worlds there, and then also yeah. the insight. Um, I was reading that book at the same time I was I was polishing off um, Matthew Rose's philosophers of the radical right or the world a world after liberalism philosophers of the radical right and it just gave me insight and the calm for me in the storm 
is the insight that God grants through books um, and just the encouragement that he supplies through books. So that's where I find calm in the storm. All right. Well, where do you go to find good news today? I am, I am blessed to be able to do this through my job. Um, in some ways, this is the job description I've written for myself, and it's part of the tagline of Gospel Bound. We keep searching until we see God working, but th- I, I just I make it my vocation to find where God is doing really encouraging things. And and shout out here to my close friend and longtime colleague and collaborator Sarah Zalstra, because yeah. it is Sarah's uh, persistent influence to always tell me, Colin. Where is the hope? Where is the hope? Where is the pivot to the hope there? And um, and that's just, it's a journalistic, but also a spiritual exercise that she and I engage in vocationally. And it, um, it makes a huge difference. So I get to, I mean, the challenge, Jim, is that you know this full well. I have a front row seat to all the bad stuff. Yeah. But not just the bad stuff. To all the good stuff too. <laughs> um, so that's that's. I mean, part of it's just a survival mechanism. I have to be looking for the good stuff because I know God is working, and because it's easier for the bad stuff to show up on my desk. So I got to keep yeah. looking. So that's where I find good news today. All right, you may have already answered the last question. I don't know what's the last great book that you've read. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna go a little bit. Uh, cliche here because people have already heard this from me, but it, I, I could go Return of the King. I could go World After Liberalism. Uh, I could go with what I've been telling people. I mean, I could go with previous gospel-bound guest Daniel Nayeri. I could go all the way back to what I've been telling other people, Hillary Mantel's Mirror in the Light, the 2021 book that I read at the beginning of 2022, but it's got to be Chris Watkins' Biblical Critical Theory. Um, and okay. it and it does and it connects to Tim here as well because Tim wrote the foreword for that book. But what most people don't know is that that book has been a persistent encouragement by Tim of Chris over many years, and it's emblematic. Chris is like a lot of us, Jim, around the same age who have learned in some ways how to do this work of cultural analysis and engagement from Tim. But Chris has capacities and insights that the rest of us can learn from, and he's taken the time to be able to do it. And for anybody who's familiar with Tim's work, it's going to be quite resonant. Um, But they may not realize how much of that has both stemmed from what Chris has learned from Tim, but also has gotten his encouragement on. But then this is the beautiful thing about where we go from here. It's not about going back and just and just kind of honoring the Tim Keller legacy. It's about what Tim is continuing to do to train up the next generation to do this work of bringing the Bible to bear on contemporary questions at a deeper level than where we've been doing that. So let me just give you a quick example. I was writing for a forthcoming book about Don Carson, our co-founder and president, and I found an old booklet uh, on what is gospel-centered ministry that Tim and Don wrote together. And they said, what we're trying to do at TGC is this, use biblical theology to get people to Jesus and from Jesus to apply his gospel to all of life. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. I think that's what we've been trying to do all along. But it's definitely the epitome of what Chris Watkin does in that book. In fact, I've never seen somebody do those two things better in one volume. So 
that's definitely the the last great book I've read. Well, thanks, Colin. Thanks really for this project, for all that you do for us through the Gospel Coalition and other places. And thank you to the listeners for joining us for this special edition of Gospel Bound. Uh, you can like, subscribe, ring the bell, or <laughs> share this episode with a friend if you found it helpful. Blessings. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. <laughs>